The man looked forward from the bow seat of his canoe, peering into the gusty westerly breeze. The river had widened since morning, and they now bypassed large marshy islands at its centre. As the canoe passed by another island, their view ahead was obstructed, and the man looked down to retrieve a map of the area from the elk skin bag at his feet. Look, Captain! Captain Suddenly look. he heard a shout from the canoe just ahead of them. The shout sounded frantic, but not in a worried way. Rather, it sounded joyous. As he looked up and his own canoe rounded the bend in the river, he locked eyes with the source of the excitement. The Pacific! Not ten miles ahead was a large opening in the river, with nothing but horizon between the two banks. A smile grew from one side of the man's face, and his eyes closed for a moment to appreciate this moment he had dreamed of for many months. We are in view of the opening of the ocean, which creates great joy. William Clark, November 7th. 1805. Virtuous Men, a podcast devoted to sharing the lives of men of history, fiction, and today, and the virtues they personify. In this season, we'll take an in-depth look at one of the most famous expeditions in American history, the Lewis and Clark Expedition. In each episode, we'll highlight key virtues exemplified by the Corps of Discovery and give you a truly unique perspective of this incredible American adventure. A virtue is a behavior one conforms to in order to achieve a moral and ethically principled life through action. A virtuous man is one who is well aware of how he falls short yet chooses not to allow his flaws to define him as he seeks to better himself. Such men show that it is possible to overcome the things that keep us from achieving our destinies. Though each man is flawed and imperfect, it is in the lives of flawed men that we see the possibility for virtue in our own lives. In this episode, we will explore the Lewis and Clark expedition's arrival at their destination and how the virtues of hospitality, diligence, equality, and protection helped them accomplish their ultimate goal and get them through another long winter. Quotes from the expedition journal entries are cited throughout this episode. For listener clarity and narrative coherence, some of these quotes have been revised. Welcome to Episode 4, Ocean in View. After the Corps of Discovery had broken into two groups on September 18, 1805, it was uncertain what their fate would be. If Captain Clark took longer than a few days to find game and find the Nez Perce villages, then the men would really be in a dire state. But thankfully, their salvation was almost literally just over the next ridgeline. The ridge terminated and we, to our inexpressible joy, discovered a large tract of prairie country lying to the southwest. The appearance of this country, which was our only hope for subsistence, greatly revived the spirits of the party, who were already reduced and much weakened for the want of food. Several of the men are unwell from dysentery. Breakings out or eruptions of the skin have also been common with us for some time. Meriwether Lewis, September 19, 1805. On the 20th, Clark and his five companions broke out of the Lolo Trail foothills and onto the very prairie Lewis had seen a day earlier. There remained plentiful evidence of Indian activity, and as the men's stomachs growled, they were comforted by the thought that food was now close at hand. The men rode about three miles towards a clear line of lodges in the distance, and about a mile out they encountered three Nez Perce. The three adolescent boys hid in the tall prairie grass, and Clark worried they would flee and alert the camp of a potential raid. Whoa, whoa. Thinking quickly, Clark dismounted unarmed and searched for the boys. And communicating to them that they came in peace, the boys returned to the villages to send a message that these explorers were friendly. After a nervous wait, the men were welcomed into a large teepee, and they were offered buffalo, dried salmon, and camas root bread. Having sustained themselves on pheasants, horse meat, and portable soup for the past few weeks, 
The man tucked into the offered food with abandon. They would soon pay for this. Clark wrote, I find myself very unwell all evening from eating the fish and roots too freely. The man had likely become sick from the bacteria and the fish, which they had no tolerance for, and also from the camas root bread. The camas root, with the appearance of onion and the taste somewhat like pumpkin, caused endless digestive issues for the man. Vomiting, diarrhea, and painful bloating and gas beset the man over the next week. Through his suffering at the second Nez Perce village, Clark made time to document the Nez Perce dress, language, and preferences on bead colors, having an eye on future trade. He didn't know it at the time, but his noticing the distinct shift in language was an astute one. The Nez Perce were Sahaptian speakers, encompassing the tribes of North Central Oregon and Southern Washington. Author and historian Larry Morris. The Nez Perce that Lewis and Clark encountered were in northern Idaho along the Clearwater River. The uh, Nez Perce Indians had quite an influence to the west and uh, that extended all the way to the uh, Columbia River. Generally a good relationship with several of the uh, tribe closer to the uh, mouth of the Columbia at Astoria. Having received valuable information about the route ahead, including the Great Falls of the Columbia, Clark sent one man back to locate Lewis and the rest of the men. He and the remaining men then continued on in search of a respected Nez Perce leader named Twisted Hare. This man would become one of the most useful they would encounter throughout the entire journey. But perhaps the most unlikely friend to the expedition was a Nez Perce woman by the name of Watkoise. She had been captured by Blackfeet raiders sometime before meeting the Corps. Taken into British Canada, she had been sold to a white trader and lived with him for a time before making her way back south to her people. Treated well by the white man she had encountered, in stark contrast to her Blackfeet captors, she advocated for the Corps and for them to be treated with hospitality. Oral tradition records Watkoese's words on Clark's arrival. These are the people who helped me. Do them no harm. The fact was the men were at the mercy of the Nez Perce, as they had been with most of the tribes they'd come into contact with. If the Nez Perce would have decided to massacre the entire Corps, they would have had no trouble doing so. The procurement of the Corps' firearms would have been motivational alone. It's really to the Nez Perce credit, because they did have the men and the arms to uh, feed the expedition and, and uh, take all of their arms. And of course, the expedition had uh, wonderful weapons from the Indian point of view and uh, really would have established them as uh, the most powerful nation in that part of the country. There's no doubt about it. But the knowledge of the trade these explorers would offer in future and Watkoese's call for peace won them over. This was no small matter as the men were coming out of the mountains exhausted and starving. They possessed vastly superior firepower, but their fatigued state meant that the Nez Perce numerical superiority and knowledge of the land would have made the Corps easy picking should they have chosen hostility. Thankfully, tribal leaders like Twisted Hair chose to remain hospitable. On the 22nd, the two captains finally met up again. In the early afternoon, Lewis's group were met by Reuben Field, the man Clark had sent back. Field greeted the men with dried fish and camas bread. Lewis commented, I divided the fish, roots, and berries, and was happy to find a sufficiency to satisfy all our appetites completely. Having spent the entirety of the day with twisted hair, obtaining detailed descriptions and sketched maps of the right ahead of them, Clark returned to find his fellow captain. I walked up to the second village where I found Captain Lewis and the party encamped. Much fatigued and hungry, they were much rejoiced to find something to eat, of which they appeared to partake plentifully. I cautioned them of the consequences of eating too much. Unfortunately, Clark's warnings about the camas route were not heeded by the man, and almost the entirety of the Corps would be burdened by stomach ailments for the next week. Suffering through this, the men set about constructing five dugout canoes for the next leg of the journey. Though the Nez Perce were one of the friendliest tribes they had encountered on the journey west, 
Time was now of the essence to make it to the Pacific Ocean and set up camp on the coast before winter began. The two captains now shifted focus onto two priorities, procuring food for the journey to the coast and trading their horses for canoes. Lewis made what was amazingly his last journal entry for over two months on September 22nd. Perhaps he was too busy to maintain the regular entries he had previously, or he was simply unwell, or the journals containing these entries were lost. In any case, the only daily logs of the expedition we have from September 23rd to November 28th is from Clark, Ordway, Gass and Whitehouse. In one entry, the ever-curious Ordway used his keen attention to detail to note the copper kettles used by the Nez Perce and the skin-style teepees adopted from the Plains tribes. We have the, the journals. They're located in Philadelphia, the originals. And I went to a Lewis and Clark event in Philadelphia and we got to see some of those. And it was really quite a thrill. There's very small notebooks. And so they did have a record of of what blank notebooks they were using. And they kind of referred to, uh, it wasn't unusual for somebody to refer to something, you know, to a reference of the journal keeping that took place. And so I believe we have everything that Lewis wrote. As to why he didn't write, that's a matter of speculation. Author and historian, Ellen Woodger the gaps in Lewis's journals. You know, it wasn't just then, but there were other gaps as well. And the historians are particularly perplexed by his failure to make any journal entries at all. After the expedition went from Camp Dubois to uh, April 1805, when they left Fort Mandan, he wrote nothing. And this is all very odd because Lewis had been instructed, of course, by Jefferson to keep a journal and <laughs> keep notes and all of that. So Lewis did this time and again. Now, many historians believe Lewis didn't write during periods of the melancholia to which he was pr prone. And that was often exacerbated by excessive drinking. And I personally, I think this is more than likely what it is. Uh, he was, he had a depressive personality. Jefferson himself had noted the, uh, what he called sensible depressions of mind in Lewis. Now, in the end, it's all just speculation, and we'll probably never know why Lewis's journals have such large gaps in them. And in all, there are gaps that, of 400 days about which he wrote nothing at all. The plan now was simple. Ditch the horses for canoes, procure supplies, and get back on the river. But unfortunately, the gastrointestinal distress the men had endured since their arrival west of the Rockies reared its ugly head again. The men were constantly beset with debilitating diarrhea, dehydration, and bouts of gas with stomach pain so painful that breathing became difficult. The same men who had made the trek through the mountains were now doubled over in pain and in need of staying close to a latrine. Captain Lewis was scarcely able to ride on a gentle horse. Several men were so unwell that they were compelled to lie on the side of the road for some time. Others were obliged to be put on horses. I gave Russia's pills to the sick this evening. William Clark, September 24th, 1805. These pills likely did more harm than good, as they contained potent laxatives and would have only made the diarrhea the men were experiencing worse and increased their dehydration. Despite the sickness throughout the Corps, the canoe building station was set up on the 26th and the men wanting to save time employed the Indian practice of burning out the centers of large trees to make dugout canoes. Five were built, and by October 7th, the Corps was finally ready to embark on the Clearwater River toward the Columbia. Twisted Hair and Ted Oharsky, a young chief, promised to accompany the Corps as vital interpreters to their fellow Sahaptian-speaking peoples. About mid-afternoon on the 7th, the boats were in the water, balanced and ready to go. Twisted Hair and Tedoharski were not amongst the Corps as they began paddling downriver, but they soon met up with the men a day later. Curiously, this is the same time in which old Toby, their Shoshone guide who had helped them through the Bitterroots, departed without even so much as a farewell. He didn't even wait to be paid for his trouble. Historians have speculated as to why this may have been. 
apparently everything that I've read indicates that it was because he was afraid of the rapids on the Clearwater River. According to one account I read, he was seen running off, and Clark wanted to send a a Nez Perce uh, horseman after Toby so that he could bring him back and be paid. Uh, but the Nez Perce chief, Twisted Hair, advised against this, saying that Toby would simply be robbed by um, other Nez Perce who lived upstream. As it turns out, Toby and his son stole two of the expedition's horses, so that was more than ample payment. And we do know that he made it back to the Shoshone. He and his son both made it back to the Shoshone. And so, with Clark feeling unwell with gastrointestinal issues again, the Corps put paddles to water and were off westward toward saltwater. All men were optimistic of the clear path toward the Pacific Ocean. But on the ninth, as the men were settling into some grub and the tunes of Cruzette's fiddle, they were stunned by a most unusual event. The men had camped with the tribe of Nez Perce, and suddenly one of the women went into a fit, singing and shouting. She offered gifts of camas root and brass bracelets to the men. When they refused, she angrily threw them in the fire, grabbed a flint knife, and cut her own arms in several places. Joseph Whitehouse wrote, The blood gushed out of them. She caught the blood and she ate it. She still kept singing and would at times make a hissing noise. The natives threw water on her and brought her to, and then gave her some small articles at which she seemed much pleased. The men were both intrigued and terrified by this event, and it was evidence that they were still in an unknown land with peoples they knew very little about who could turn violent at any moment. Still, as the men turned in for the night, they looked forward to another demanding day on the river. The Corps headed downriver once more, and they had no idea what to expect from the diversity in environment and native culture that awaited them. From the vegetationless Columbia Plateau to the stormy rain-soaked Pacific coast, with its evergreens as far as the eye could see, to the strange clucking sounds made by the Chinookan people of the Northwest and their hard bargaining methods for goods. The men were entering a land more foreign to them now than any other they had yet passed through. Salmon now replaced buffalo as the main source of meat, and to the men's curiosity the scaffolding burial method seen on the plains was now replaced by the more typical subterranean burial method the men were used to. On October 10th, the men reached the Clearwater and Snake River confluence, present-day Lewiston, Idaho, and Clarkston, Washington. Over the next week, they would battle serious rapids along the Snake that would test their strength and endurance. On the 13th, Clark sighted no fewer than six rapids throughout the day. The following day, another five rapids greeted their propulsion down the Snake, one of which turned into real trouble for the men. At this rapid, the canoe steered by a drewyer struck a rock. The stern of the canoe took in water, and she sunk. A number of our articles floated, and all that could be caught was taken by two other canoes. A great many articles lost. Among other things, two of the men's bedding, shot pouches, and tomahawks. Every article is wet, of which we have great cause to lament. Our two canisters of loose powder, all our roots prepared in the Indian way, and half of our goods. William Clark, October 14, 1805. Twisted Hare and Tedaharski were sent ahead at this point to make contact with the tribes upriver and to pave a way for peaceful relations with the Corps. They subsequently made contact with the Wanapam and Yakima tribes who lived around the Snake Columbia confluence, present day Tri Cities, Washington. October 16th was a momentous day. The Corps reached this very meeting of the two great rivers, and their presence certainly did not go unnoticed. Dozens of Yakima and Wanapam lined the shores as the men made their way along and eventually set up camp. They then awaited a formal delegation with the two respected chiefs. Patrick Gass described the environment surrounding the men as level, rich, and beautiful, but without timber. Tobacco was smoked, as was the usual custom, to initiate friendly greetings with the natives, and firewood was procured, a growing scarcity in what was now the Columbia Plateau. 
That evening, the men of the Corps were greeted by a great spectacle, one the likes of which they hadn't seen since their stay with the Shoshone. A chief came from their camp at the head of about 200 men singing and beating on their drumsticks and keeping time to the music. They formed a half circle around us and sung for some time. We gave them all a smoke and spoke to their chiefs as well as we could by signs, informing them of our friendly disposition to all nations. William Clark, October 16, 1805. Staying at this camp a couple of days, Clark took the opportunity to scout up the Columbia and came across dozens of lodges and neat scaffoldings for drying fish. He decided to enter one of the lodges and was pleasantly surprised by the greeting he received. After being welcomed in, Clark was offered a sitting mat and some boiled salmon. He took the opportunity to document the way of life of these river peoples, and these journal entries are some of the most prized by historians as they offer a glimpse into native life before westward expansion unsettled and uprooted them forever. Clark's observations contrasted greatly with the wisdom of the age that most native wives were squall drudges overworked, exploited, and underappreciated by their husbands. Their dress is similar to those of the fork, except their robes are smaller and do not reach lower than the waist. Three-fourths of them have scarcely any robes at all. The women have only a small piece of a robe which covers their shoulders and neck and reaches down behind to their waists with a tight piece of leather about the waist. They are all employed in fishing and drying fish, of which they have great quantities on their scaffolds. Lewis found that these river societies had great emphasis on the sharing of labor and gave a tremendous amount of honor to age and wisdom. He also keenly noted that the flat roofs of these mat lodges in the area showed that rain was not a concern to these people, something that would soon change. These observations highlighted Clark's diligence in documenting the people groups he came across with such detail, honesty, and lack of bias. He must have known that his findings would upset some to find that native society was much less savage and much more complex and interesting than they would have liked to believe. Yet he tirelessly sought out the truth about their way of life, from the smallest details of their dress to their way of building lodging and their economic trade with other tribes. Clark's diligent journaling, especially with the lack of surviving entries from Lewis from the same time period, are a priceless piece of history we shouldn't neglect today. Finally departing the buzz of activity at their camp on October 18th, the Corps were on their way down the Columbia now. This would be the same river on which they would eventually meet the Pacific and the terminus of their expedition. Passing by a new tribe, the Umatilla, the men noticed a stark shift in their behavior as most natives they saw hurriedly hid themselves in their lodges and waited for the men to pass. This was most likely due to the fact that these people had never seen white men before. Later that day, with the man ashore, Clark shot a crane. In the distance, they spotted a group of natives running and screaming in terror. The small party, including Charbonneau, Sikagawea, and the two Nez Perce guides entered the village to find its inhabitants locked inside their lodges in utter agitation. It took great pleading of their peaceful intentions from Clark, the presence of Sikagawea, and a great many drags of Clark's pipe to calm their senses. Clark later explained that the alarm was occasioned by their thinking that they were supernatural and came down from the clouds. Having scarcely seen a firearm before, much less in use, Clark's killing of the crane had sparked utter pandemonium in the Umatilla village. The man had a very noteworthy event on October 21st. Dampened by the sloshing water of the snake in Columbia, part of their camas root supply had turned sour and then fermented leading to a very welcome treat, Clark noted. One of our party, John Collins, presented us with some very good beer made of Pashiko Karmash bread. <sighs> this was the first alcoholic beverage since their wild night at Great Falls in early summer, and it was the last one the Corps would taste until their return home the following year, in fall of 1806. On October 22nd, the men met their first physical barrier along the Columbia, Salilo Falls, 
Clark named the falls the Great Falls of the Columbia. Now submerged by the damming of the river, in 1805 these falls accounted for a 20-foot drop at low volume. And though they didn't compare to the Great Falls of the Missouri, a portage was still needed to bypass them. Luckily, since the falls and subsequent narrows were ideal fishing locations, there were plenty of natives close by willing to lend a hand. The men were assisted by the Taninos of the south bank and their horses proved invaluable in moving the heaviest of their supplies from the canoes. The portage gained some unwanted attention too. Lines of Indians sat staring down at the camp the Corps had made on the west end of their portage, and this was cause for concern. They had already experienced several instances of theft from their camps, and this would prove so again. We found the natives were very troublesome about our camp, and we were forced to watch them for fear of their stealing from us. William Clark, October 22, 1805. No thievery was noted in the expedition logs, but the return journey through this area would prove quite a different story. For the time being though, the men camped that evening in the area of the falls which was a spectacular sight. Clark even noted seeing numerous sea otters hunting for fish around the falls. But this peaceful bliss was suddenly broken when news came from one of the Nez Perce chiefs who had accompanied them. Using sign language, he told the captains. The nation below intended to kill us. We examined all the arms and completed the ammunition to 100 rounds. The natives left us earlier this evening than usual, which gives a shadow of confirmation. We are at all times and places on our guard and are under no greater apprehension than is common. Nothing ever came of the rumor though, and it is quite possible that this was a ruse to ensure a hasty and accepted departure of the two Nez Perce chiefs. Twisted Hair had already informed Clark that he feared for his life west of the Narrows in the river, which now lay just before them. This was the boundary between the Sahaptian and Chinookan speakers, and the men would no longer be of much use to interpret. Lewis and Clark, though, persuaded the chiefs to remain with the Corps for another couple of days. They sought to use them as a means of brokering peace between the two communities, in the hope that this would benefit future trade in the area. As they reached the modern day area of the Dolls, the Columbia continued to narrow considerably, and with that constriction of the waterway, became a quickening of the current and more rapids. The men had now entered what they called the Short Narrows, with the subsequent Long Narrows still to come. Clark noted, in those narrows, the water was agitated in the most shocking manner, with boils, swells, and whirlpools. We passed with great risk. Having never seen canoes float down these rapids before, the natives in the area stood on the shore in amazement as the Corps' best watermen attempted to shoot the rapids. They all made it, and camp was made at the west end of the short narrows that night. This area was a central hub for Indian trading, and they soon made contact with a number of tribes including the Wishram and Waskos. The fishing was so good in these narrows that Clark commented on October 24th. I counted 107 stacks of dried pounded fish in different places on the rocks, which must have contained 10,000 pounds of fish. There were three major salmon runs on the Columbia from spring to fall, and with the final and most substantial run having just taken place, the scaffolds of dry fish must have been simply overflowing. This must have been an immense sight to the Corps, and welcome news that their days of gnawing on a few strands of horse meat were long past. At this trading post, fish was traded with local tribes, the Yakima and Taninos, and more distant tribes like the Nez Perce. Even Plains Indians would make the trek to this post to trade their coveted buffalo hides, meat and bear grass used for making baskets, as well as horses. These tribes were less interested in trading for meat and more interested in the European goods that could be bought as the post was a mere 200 miles upriver from the coast and the plentiful trading ships. This of course was the distance the Kornai had to reach in their goal, just a couple hundred miles to go. The construction of the Wishram houses, with their sunken floors, was noted in detail by Patrick Gass. 
This village has better lodges than any on the river above, one story of which is sunk underground and lined with flag mats. The upper part, about four feet above ground, is covered over with cedar bark, and they are tolerably comfortable houses. Grisette's fiddle was again a source of amusement to the natives that night, and good relations were shared amongst all. On the 25th, Clark set eyes on a majestic sight. This little creek heads in the range of mountains which run southeast and northeast for a long distance. The pinnacle of the round-topped mountain, which we saw a short distance below the forks of the rivers, is south 43 degrees west of us. At about 37 miles, it is at this time topped with snow. He had just spotted the Cascade Mountain Range and the 11,249 foot volcano, Mount Hood. On November 3rd, the men encountered the Sandy River. They named the river this for the large amounts of sand it dispersed into the Columbia. And this location was of note as the maps the men had of both east and west now came together. The Spanish had explored the region in 1774 under Bruno de Heseta. Then came the voyages of Captain James Cook and George Vancouver in the 1770s and 90s. Then of course was the Scottish explorer Alexander Mackenzie who had made a mildly accurate depiction of the Columbia River and Pacific Northwest region. These maps were part of the library accompanying the expedition. Though not entirely accurate, they could now follow their path on a map once more. Those maps may have been helpful, but my understanding is that from the time they uh, got into uh, present Montana, uh, the valuable resource was Indians. From that part of the journey, I don't believe Western maps were very helpful at all. With Winterfast approaching, the priority of the captain's nigh was to make it to the coast and establish sturdy winter quarters, alongside friendly relations with the natives. On the fourth, they encountered a large Skalute village near the mouth of the Willamette River, near modern-day Portland, Oregon. These natives were a far cry from the unarmed tribes that had been the norm from the Rockies westward. They were armed to the teeth by comparison. These Skalut traders acted as middlemen in the lucrative economic trade in the area, and their dealings with the Europeans had allowed them to boast a healthy armory. The men purchased food from the Skaluts and continued a little further west to set up camp for the night, but they were soon followed by two canoes filled with a dozen Skalut warriors. Clark noted. Most of them had either war axes, spears, bows strung with quivers of arrows, muskets, or pistols, and tin flasks to hold their powder. The captains eagerly invited the natives into their camp to join them, but an uneasy feeling quickly began to envelop them. These men were not there simply to smoke the pipe and share some dried salmon. The conversation, or as much as could be had, quickly turned sour and disagreeable, and the warriors took advantage of the distraction to pinch a few items. Clark wrote, During the time we were at dinner, those fellows stole my pipe tomahawk, which they were smoking with. I immediately searched every man and the canoes, but could find nothing of my tomahawk. While searching for the tomahawk, one of those scoundrels stole a coat of one of our interpreters. The pipe tomahawk Clark spoke of was one of his prized possessions. The encounter left the men bitter and highly suspicious of the natives they encountered over the next few days, and it would be the last time they would ever invite such a large number of heavily armed natives into their camp. From the Indians' point of view, what we call theft, they likely thought of as just being compensated for the way they were helping Lewis and Clark. So you ended up basically in a, in a conflict of uh, cultures. and. Uh, both sides kind of became increasingly hostile and Lewis and Clark felt that they were under threat of being attacked and so it was one of those times when it was really that hostilities could have broken out. They passed Multnomah, Kathlamet and Wakiam villages and soon the beauty of the scenery all around them eased the tension once more.
Again awed by the sight of the Cascade volcanoes, Clark noticed another majestic peak. It is immensely high and covered with snow, rising in a kind of cone, perhaps the highest pinnacle from the common level in America. He was looking at the then 10,000 foot high Mount St. Helens, now just 8,363 feet after its eruption in 1980 it is now famous for. He couldn't see from this particular vantage point, but an even larger Cascade monster loomed just north of this location, the 14,411 foot glaciated giant Mount Rainier. Clark would sort out the region's big five volcanoes by name later in the coming winter. They were now making in about 30 miles a day in the Columbia, and the anticipation grew with each passing day that their destination was at hand. Then came the moment the Corps of Discovery had been waiting for since their departure from St. Louis 542 days earlier. Great joy in camp. We are in view of the ocean, this great Pacific Ocean, which we have been so long anxious to see. William Clark, November 7th, 1805. This quote has been popularly requoted, Ocean in view, oh the joy. In reality, what they were actually looking at was the inlet to the Columbia Estuary, where the river meets the Pacific. But they were palpably close now to their goal, and making it there to set up winter camp now consumed every mind of the Corps. There was, though, one more opportunity for misery and suffering before that, and on the 10th, the Pacific Northwest weather duly obliged. The currents and the wind of the Pacific coast held them back, stranding them between Gray's Point and Point Ellis, where they remained stuck for five days. Clark lamented. A hard rain all last night. We again got wet. The rain continued at intervals all day. Wind very high from the southwest. Blew a storm all day. Our situation is truly disagreeable. Patrick Gass added, A terrible night of rain, hail, thunder, and lightning. We thought it best to move our camp, and fixed our canoes and loaded them with stones to keep them down. The rain still continued, and the river remained very rough. At this point, the Corps had been in the field for seven straight months, and with the brackish water all around them and the constant rain, their clothing was literally rotting, as were their tents. They were in very bad shape. This was but a taste of what the winter would be like in the Pacific Northwest. Wet, windy, damp, cold, and a never-ceasing rain. Moving a few miles down the shore to Chinook Point on the 15th, the men found an abandoned Chinook village and remained there for the next week. Clark used this opportunity at station camp to calculate the distance traveled from their departure from St. Louis, arriving at 4,133 miles. They were visited by the Chinook and Clatsop Indians while camped here, and many of the men were eager to partake in the bounties offered by the native women presented to them by the chief's wife. As Clark dutifully noted though, many of the natives exhibited signs of venereal disease, something that would soon ravage the men of the expedition as a result of their indiscretions. Consulting the natives, they learned that the south side of the river offered the best availability of game to hunt for the winter. They also trusted the south side dwelling natives much more than those of the north side. On November 24th, a historic event took place. Lewis and Clark allowed the man and the woman of the expedition a hand in choosing their fate for the winter. First, a poll was taken as to their next move, crossing the Columbia again to explore the south bank or proceeding directly to their intended camp. The second poll decided their eventual camp. There were three choices, make camp on the south shore, head back east to the Sandy River area, or journey all the way back upriver to Celelo Falls. This wasn't just noteworthy because it broke protocol, it was after all a military endeavor led by two military men. These types of expeditions are rarely a democratic affair, and the leaders almost always make the decision and demand total compliance. But perhaps even more noteworthy, Sacagawea and York were given a chance to vote, 
a native woman, and Clark's black slave. No doubt the captains, having seen the pricelessness of Sagagawea throughout the journey, and the tireless efforts of York made them buck the acceptable customs of the day to allow only votes to white men. The tallied vote in Clark's log is somewhat hard to decipher. York is noted as having chosen to look for a spot along the south bank, while a specific note about Sakagawea, or Janie, as Clark affectionately called her, mentions her abdicating a place close to Potas, or root, sources. This was over 50 years before the American Civil War, when racial prejudices were still very much the norm. While it is likely both Lewis and Clark still harbored some of these views, this vote exemplifies the equality they sought towards their fellow Corps members. They understood that giving each member a say in their future was not just a political gesture, but a statement of trust and appreciation in the efforts they had made thus far. And again showing great leadership, the captains realized the morale issue that was festering after weeks spent enduring the miserable conditions of the November coastline. This vote likely brought some of the members who were becoming disillusioned with their sorry state back on board. Captain Lewis appears in the journal entries again after this vote, and on December 2nd, he commented on the pleasant appearance of game. This is the first elk we have killed on this side of the Rocky Mountains. A great deal of elk sign in the neighborhood. The hunting party returned the following day with good news that six elk had been killed. A steady supply of red meat was back on the menu at last. The site that would become Fort Clatsop was chosen, and on December 3rd, Clark took a page from the book of Alexander Mackenzie when he carved the following famous message on a nearby pine tree. William Clark, December 3rd, 1805 by land from the United States in 1804 and 1805. Patrick Gass commented of the joy of finding a location to spend winter and of the weather. They have found a place about 15 miles from this camp, up a small river which puts into a large bay on the south side of the Columbia. This will answer very well for winter quarters, as game is very plenty, which is the main object with us. We intend to move there as soon as circumstances will admit. There is more wet weather on this coast than I ever knew in any other place. During a month, we have had three fair days, and there is no prospect of a change. As is the norm in the present day, the Pacific Coast region of Washington and Oregon receives more than 60 inches of rain annually. This was six times the amount that fell on the lands they had passed through in the Columbia Plateau. From December through the break of spring, the weather would be unrelenting and the men would be at their wit's end to get out of it. On December 9th, the men began construction near present-day Astoria. The structure would become a 50-square-foot timber fort with thick posts sharpened to a point along its perimeter. The fort would house 33 members of the Corps. The men built two separate buildings, one with three rooms and the other with four. One building contained the meat room, an orderly room used for expedition planning and logistics, the captain's room where Lewis and Clark lodged, and a separate room for Charbonneau, his wife Sakagawea, and their infant son, John Baptiste, or Pompey. The second building housed the rest of the corps, in three adjoining rooms, providing lodging for first, second, and third squad. The wall contained two gates, the main gate and the water gate, with a sentry box at the main gate. The gates were closed and locked at sunset to prevent any intrusions by the natives, friendly or otherwise. The fort took three weeks to complete and the men settled in for what they knew would be a very long winter. Attention should be given to the detail of the fort blueprint drawn up by the captains, specifically the inclusion of a room solely for the purpose of the one married couple in the group. This can be easily overlooked. Of course the only couple amongst them had their own room. But when one considers the time and effort it took to construct an additional room, with limited time, resources and most of all energy reserves, it is a significant detail, not to mention the disdain Lewis and Clark clearly had for Charbonneau. Add to this that Sakagawea was the only woman in a group of 30-some men who had gone large parts of the past year and a half with no female companionship. She was no more than 17 at the time, and by all accounts, she was a very beautiful woman, with striking features and no doubt a temptation to the men. 
Her vulnerability in a camp full of mind-numbingly bored, lonely men must have been noticed by the two captains. And so they very deliberately designed the cabins to provide as much protection as could be afforded to the young Shoshone woman, even placing her room next to theirs. With her infant son now 10 months old, this was no doubt a burden as the baby's crying and fussing probably kept the men up some nights. If this was the case, neither man ever complained about it in their journal entries. They chose to protect Sakagawea as a valued member of the expedition, to show care for her unique needs as a woman and a mother in the midst of a large group of frontiersmen, and took a chivalric attitude towards how this may have inconvenienced them both. With the men now in survival mode, enduring what would be a monotonous two months, Clark's journal entry on December 16th says it all. The winds violent. Trees falling in every direction. Whirlwinds with gusts of rain, hail and thunder. This kind of weather lasts all day. Certainly one of our worst days that ever was. It would come to pass that the fort they built for their protection would prove to be more like a prison than a fortification. Over the next few weeks, journal entries always included one of the following. We are all wet and disagreeable. Cold and dreadful day. Or, the rain continued, as usual. Throughout the 106 days spent at Fort Clatsop, there would be a grand total of 12 days without rain, recorded in the expedition weather logs, and just six of these were sunny. Clark's Christmas Day entry summed up the mood. Our dinner today consisted of poor boiled elk, spoiled fish, and some roots. A bad Christmas dinner. Lewis, longing for home on New Year's Day, wrote, This morning, I was awoken at an early hour by the discharge of a volley of small arms, which was fired by our party in front of our quarters to usher in the new year. Our repast of this day consists principally in the anticipation of the first day of January, 1807, when the bosom of our friends, we hope to participate in the mirth and hilarity of the day. And when the zest is given by the recollection of the present, we shall completely, both mentally and corporally, enjoy the repast which the hand of civilization has prepared for us. The captains, despite the hardship, boredom, sickness and bad weather, managed to maintain a high degree of discipline among the men. Our fortification being now complete, we issued an order for the more exact and uniform discipline and government of the garrison. Meriwether Lewis, January 1st, 1806. Visits to the surrounding Chinook, Tillamook, and Clatsop Indian tribes were rare. The Fort Clatsop stay was wholly different from the core stay with the Mandans, when there were daily communions with the native people. Multiple factors were the cause of this. The weather, the familiarity the natives already had with whites, and visiting black sailors from New England vessels, for that matter. And the trade they had experienced meant they were mostly looking for goods and not merely social curiosity of the bearded white men. The Corps and their ramshackle fort were simply not of much interest to the neighboring tribes. From the Corps' perspective, they had become increasingly suspicious of the tribes they encountered as they approached the coast, and some of their customs were likely very off-putting to some of the men. Well, the thievery was part of it, um, and, and of course it continued when they were at Fort Clatsop, uh, not from the Clatsop, but from other tribes in the area. Uh, certainly, their winter among the Pacific Northwest Indians was very different from their stay with the Mandan the previous year. But it, I, think a I think a lot of that had to do with the area and the circumstances. Um, the tribes in that area were certainly the most culturally diverse of all the Native Americans that Lewis and Clark met. Now, of the nations that the expedition encountered, the majority were Chinook, whose sub-tribes included the Clatsop. Like other nations in the region, the Chinook were a fishing people, but they also had an extensive trading system which was developed over time due to extensive contact with British and American traders who had come to the area via the ocean or from Canada. 
Um, now, due to their experiences with white traders in, who had come to the area, the Klatsub had become very opportunistic and they focused on profit. So they took full advantage whenever they could see that the core of discovery had a need that they could fulfill. They bargained really, really hard. And over time, the captains uh, came to complain bitterly about the Klatsup's trading tactics. A rare exception was in early February when the Chinook chief, Tukum, showed up at the fort with 25 men. The men of the Corps were initially anxious about this sudden arrival, but Tuckham's visit was a peaceful one. The men smoked and shared food, but at the end of the day the chief and his men were ushered out of the fort and the gates were locked behind them. Strict orders had been given concerning what must be done when a native approached the fort, and no native was allowed to remain in the fort overnight, even a highly respected chief. This no doubt soured any potential for warm relationships with the Chinook. To their credit, the Clatsop were mostly friendly neighbors, and they did show the Americans where to hunt for elk, and they taught them fishing techniques. And um, they, though they bargained the Corps out of a lot of goods, including whiskey and tobacco, they didn't steal from the Corps as other Chinook Indians did. There was incessant pilfering that took place in their stores, and that was a huge source of irritation to Lewis and Clark. Now, there were encounters with other tribes in the area, and these are, these are documented in, in the journals. These included the Tillamook, the Wishraman Wasco, the Skalut, and the Watlala, and all but the Tillamook were Chinookian. One other curious fact about the expedition's winter on the coast was their lack of contact with merchant vessels that were known to frequent the region. For decades, British and American ships had been sailing further and further up the Columbia in search of otter and beaver pelts, and to initiate trade relations with the Columbia River tribes. President Jefferson had sent word to all American captains sailing near the mouth of the Columbia of Lewis's possible presence in the area, and Lewis had hoped to find one of the vessels to replenish his supplies. The answer likely lies in the geopolitical realities of the time, the United States was fighting a war in the Mediterranean in 1805, in the First Barbary War, soaking up most of its Navy vessels. The remaining vessels were either docked under repair, or were in need of repairs. There was also no way of knowing exactly where the Corps was, and so no meeting with any merchant or Navy vessel ever took place. The man killed 130 elk that winter more so due to their lacking the ability to preserve the meat rather than their need for that amount of fresh meat. The damp, temperate climate made for a lot of spoiled elk meat with no way of freezing it. Most taxing of all, to compound their lack of alcohol, the men were now running out of tobacco. Tree bark was used as a substitute, but was obviously a sorry replacement. One man who didn't waste his time over the winter of 1806 was Meriwether Lewis. He made the first scientific descriptions of the mountain beaver, candlefish, sea otters, Sitka spruce, Columbia black-tailed deer, California condor, and the Oregon crabapple. He made several detailed drawings of these plants and animals in his journal entries, and on February 16th wrote of the vulture. I believe this to be the largest bird of North America. It was not in good order, and yet it weighed 25 pounds. Between the extremities of the wings, it measured 9 feet 2 inches. The head and the part of the neck is uncovered with feathers. The tail is composed of 12 feathers of equal length, each 14 inches. We have seen it feeding on the remains of the whale and other fish which have been thrown up by the waves on the sea coast. The whale Lewis spoke of was a large blue whale, over a hundred feet in length, that had washed up on the coast about 35 miles from Fort Clatsop in late December. On January 8th, a scouting party led by the two captains had set out to find the whale and secure as much blubber and oil as could be carried back. They found the carcass of the whale, the beast having been picked dry by the local Tillamooks days earlier. Lewis described, we were not able to procure more blubber than about 300 pounds and a few gallons of the oil. 
This they have brought with them, and small as the store is, we prize it highly, and thank the hand of Providence for directing the whale to us. We think him much more kind to us than he was to Jonah, having sent this monster to be swallowed by us instead of swallowing us, as Jonah did. Takagawea, having longed to see the coastline, begged, pleaded, then demanded to be allowed to go with the party to see the whale. The Indian woman was very impatient to be permitted to go, and was therefore indulged. She observed that she had traveled a long way with us to see the great waters, and now that the monstrous fish was also to be seen, she thought it very hard that she could not be permitted to see either. She had never yet been to the ocean. Meriwether Lewis, January 6, 1805 the Corps' wintertime practice of trading trinkets and beads for sexual favors from the several Chinook women had led to at least two men contracting venereal disease. By the spring, the captains put an end to the practice as they knew their expedition homeward was near. The captains are both believed to have abstained from these kinds of relations throughout the entire expedition, and Lewis gave a humorous explanation of the prohibition of it on March 17th. Old Delachelle Wilt and his woman still remain. They have formed a camp near the fort and seem to be determined to lay siege to us. But I believe, notwithstanding every effort of their winning grace, the men have preserved their constancy to the vow of celibacy which they have made on this occasion to Captain Clark and myself. We have prepared for our departure and shall set out as soon as the weather will permit. As the coastline winter storms abated with the onset of spring, a growing anticipation quickened the men with their departure back east now at hand. The major goals of the expedition had been achieved, with the exception of linking up with American or British traders. Stowed in carefully made elk skin bags, the captains packed a priceless catalogue of hand-drawn maps of the western quadrant of North America. Details on its native peoples, botanical species, animals, and artifacts. The all-water route to the Pacific had not been found, but President Jefferson would surely be pleased with all the men had achieved. The captains left Fort Clatsop and its furniture in the hands of Chief Cobaway and left their winter prison after three and a half miserable months. At 1 p.m. we left Fort Clatsop on our homeward bound journey. At this place we had wintered and remained from the 7th of December, 1805 to this day, and have lived as well as we had any right to expect. William Clark, March 23rd, 1806. The Corps had made it through their second winter. The bulk of their job was done, and it had been mostly successful. Their travels over the past year had taken them from the Dakotas, through the plains, over the Rockies, and down the two major northwestern waterways to the Pacific Ocean. They had been shown great hospitality by the Nez Perce, who played no small part in saving the men from the brink of starvation and setting them up for a successful remainder of their journey west. The men's diligence, especially William Clark, in documenting the many native cultures they encountered, would prove vital to educate the American leadership of their ways of life and customs. Once they had reached the coast, the two captains made the decision to give each member of the crew a vote on where they would make their winter quarters, including Sacagawea and York. This showed that the men valued the principle that each person is equal in so much as they have the right to have a say in their own destiny. This was a major foreshadowing of what the American nation would become a century and a half later. A place where neither one's sex nor the color of their skin played a role in democracy. Finally, the two captains showed great chivalry in offering protection to the sole woman wintering with them at Fort Clatsop. The respect and dignity showed towards her and her baby in building a separate room for her family showed that the captains truly valued her and appreciated her potential vulnerability. The Corps was now ready to put paddles in water and row back east now against the current of the Columbia. They had some idea of what awaited them, 
but there would still be many surprises over the next six months as they made their way back to their starting point of St. Louis, Missouri, some 4,162 miles to the east. This episode of Virtuous Men was written and recorded by Jamie Adams and edited by Scott Einig. Featuring the voice talents of Ethan Thomas as Meriwether Lewis, Jared Thomas as William Clark, Scott Einig as Patrick Gass, and Stacey Adams as Watt Kuis. Special thanks to Larry Morris, author of The Fate of the Core and In the Wake of Lewis and Clark, and Ellen Woodger, author of Encyclopedia of the Lewis and Clark Expedition. Tune in next time for part five, where the Corps makes their way back east, encountering familiar faces as well as new obstacles along the way. <laughs>